Okay, most of you know that we are right in the middle of a, not in the middle, but we're at the beginning of a study on Mark, coming through Mark's gospel. And today we're landing on verses 14 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. Let's pray, and then we will uh, read this section. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come together and open your word. God, I pray, I just, I just hope you were exalted, Lord, as we sang to you just now. And God, I pray you be exalted now as, as your, your word is taught and proclaimed. God, give, give me the ability to rightly divide your word. God, give us all the ability to glory in you, Christ Jesus, as we see you revealed in these words. Help us, God, continue during this time, Lord, just like we've been asking. You would draw out our hearts, God, to see you in all your glory, and that we would fall down and worship you. You are worthy of our praise. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to start off with just an overview of this section that we're on, Mark 1, 14 through 20. So let's read it. We're going to read it together. Mark 1, starting in verse 14. Kind of get your eyes on it and uh, read it with me. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. <clears throat> okay, so what this section is going to do, and I have this on your sheet right there. At the very heart of Jesus' ministry was a glorious gospel that Jesus proclaimed. We see that in verse 14 and 15. And we see that we have these beloved men that Jesus trained. His disciples, and we see that in verse 16 through 20. So if we're going to break this down, kind of give it an overview of this section. We've got Jesus' message, verse 14 and 15, and we have Jesus' men, verse 16 through 20. Or to say it another way, in verses 14 and 15, we have Christ Jesus the preacher. In verse 16 through 20, we have Christ Jesus the disciple maker. And this is what we see in this section. This passage, verse 14 through 20, it sits like a title page over all of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his ministry on this earth even. And here's what I mean. This passage summarizes what Jesus' ministry, the focus of his ministry on this earth, and the, especially the time that he spent in Galilee. Uh, as you read through the whole book of Mark, uh, you're going to see the earthly ministry of Jesus. You're going to see that. But right here at the very beginning, we get Christ Jesus, the proclaimer of the gospel, and we get Christ Jesus, the disciple maker. This is the, this is the main substance of his ministry, okay? I want you to think about the structure of Mark up to this point. You've got the first 13 verses. We've already gone through those, and it's just introducing Jesus to you. Verse 1 says he's the son of God. Verse 2 through 8 says John, John the Baptist comes forward saying, saying that he, he is worthy. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, Okay, this is him. He's the son of God. You get in verse 9 through 11. He's baptized and God the Father says that's the son of God. And over and over again. So you got this introduction to who Jesus is in the first 13 verses. And right here in verse 14 through 20, we get the, the beginnings of describing Jesus' ministry on this earth. Now, why does he begin? Why does Mark begin with the message and his men? The message of the gospel and his men. He decided, why did he start that way? And I'm presenting to you because that's the main substance of his ministry. I want to pull out one little detail that shows that quickly. If you look at verse 14, it says Jesus came to where? <clears throat> Jesus came to Galilee. It says he came to Galilee in verse 14. You see that? Now, the writer could have been more specific here. He could have been much more specific, but instead he gives us generalized uh, location. He's, in, he's coming to Galilee. Now, what do I mean he could have been more specific? 
Well, one thing is Galilee is a region. You actually, the way it broke down, you have Galilee in the north with many cities, Samaria in, kind of centrally located with many cities, and you have Judea in the south with many cities, including Jerusalem. So there's many cities here. He could have been a lot more specific. Where did Jesus come to? Also, Jesus spent most of his life in Galilee. One preacher said 90% of his life was spent in Galilee. And, and you, if you start thinking about Mark, it seems that way. Mark chapter one, chapters 1 through 9, it's all in Galilee. It's, it's a few years of Jesus' life in Galilee. Mark chapter 10, Jesus heads toward Jerusalem. And then the last, the last chapters of Mark, Mark 11 through 16, is the last week of his life. So most of his time was spent in Galilee. So why was he not more specific right here? He just says Jesus came to Galilee. Also, as you continue to read throughout the rest of Mark, he does get more specific. Verse 21, he says Jesus is at Capernaum in Galilee. Chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 6, verse 1 says he's in Nazareth of Galilee. So he gets very specific at times. But why is it that right here he just gives you a generalized term? It says Jesus came to Galilee. Because what he's about to lay out for you is the main substance. It's the, the bread and butter of the ministry of Jesus. He was a preacher of the gospel and he was a maker of disciples. We get the main, the, the very heart of Jesus' ministry It's found right here. Now, as we go through Mark together, we're going to see a ton of amazing things about Jesus. Just a bunch of amazing things. We're going to see him as a healer, as he, as he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And, and many other people. We're going to see him as one who has authority over all demonic powers. We're going to see him as one who raises the dead as he raises up Jairus' daughter. We're going to see many miracles. He's going to be the miracle worker who walks on water. He reads people's thoughts. He fed 5,000. We're just going to see Christ and all these miraculous things that he had done. And we ought to glory in Christ Jesus for these things. We ought to see Christ in this and just glory in him. But right here from the very beginning, before Mark exalts him as a miracle worker and a healer, Mark exalts him as the preacher of the gospel and the disciple maker. This is the main substance of his ministry. His miracles are amazing and they point to the, this message, this message that Christ Jesus proclaimed. Because if this is the substance of his ministry, he's a preacher, he's a disciple maker, that ought to put a lot of weight in your mind of this message that he's proclaiming. And what these miracles and this healing does is it points to the authenticity and the importance of the message that Christ Jesus proclaimed. We see that in many places in the Bible. So don't see, don't only see the miracles of Jesus as we come through Mark and miss this glorious message that he proclaimed. Don't miss it. And there's people, at the, if you keep reading through Mark chapter 1, and we get closer to the end of Mark chapter 1, there's these people, they've seen Jesus' miracles, and they are mesmerized by the miracles of Jesus. So you know what they do? They go seek him out, and they try to find him, and his disciples came to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. You know what Jesus said? Listen to Mark chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus said, let us go into the towns, into the next towns, that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose, I have come forth. Don't miss this glorious message that Christ Jesus, he was, that he proclaimed. He was a preacher of a glorious gospel. Okay. And then secondly, I'll tell you this. Don't miss this important focus of Jesus' ministry that he was a disciple maker, as we see in verses 16 uh, through 20. Uh, one quick example of this. Jesus, just before he goes to the cross... We see this in John chapter 17. Just before he goes to the cross, you had this section of scripture that almost summarizes the ministry of Jesus on this earth. And guess what he mentions? 43 times in 26 verses, he, he speaks toward the men whom God had given him. The men whom God had given him. This was an important emphasis, a focus. And we've got these two focuses. Jesus, the gospel proclaimer. Jesus, the disciple maker. And we have them right here in compact form in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. And they're set there to be, to be a, a, a offshoot, to, to shoot us off into the ministry of Jesus. This is his focus. This is the bread and butter. Now, let me make a quick application there. I know this is too early for application. But I'm going to make a quick application to this thought. At the heart... What do you think about this? At the heart of all effective ministry is the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples of Jesus. Let me say it another way. 
Do you want effective ministry? And I know you do. Or say it like this. Do, do you want to serve God effectively during your short little time on this earth? Do you want that? And I know you do. Well, let it be found at the very heart of your ministry, whatever it might be, a glorious gospel getting planted in the hearts of men and disciples being made. Okay, so whatever your giftedness may be, maybe you're you're gifted in teaching or giving or exhorting or words of wisdom or acts of mercy, whatever your gifting might be, whatever your place in life, maybe you're a college student, construction worker, you're a banker, you're a homemaker, whatever you might be. Whatever ministry you're engaged in at any particular time, a ministry of a husband to his wife, ministry of parents to children, ministry to the lost, ministry to the poor, maybe you're a missionary, maybe you're a sender of missionaries, whatever ministry you're engaged in at any particular time, let, let the unwavering focus be this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ planted in the souls of men and, and with a goal toward making disciples. My prayer has been for a long time that that would be the unwavering focus of this church. There's many things that will, that will compete for our, our, our attention. Even good things. There are good things that will compete for our attention. And there's a lot of those good things that we'll do, a lot of them. But may we be, as a church, may we have this unwavering focus that, that in our ministry, at the very center of it, is a glorious gospel being planted in the souls of men and disciples being made. Making disciples. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go phrase by phrase through this passage, beginning with the first two verses. Okay, we're just going to go phrase by phrase. And if you look on your sheet, I have each phrase, the order that I'm going in, because I'm just going in the order it's written. But the order that I'm going in, they're, they're in bold type. You'll see them there. Okay, those are the phrases we're going to walk through. Um, let's start with verse 14 and 15. We're going to read it again. Let me put a quick title. I'm going to put a title on these verses. Jesus... The divine preacher of a glorious message. The divine preacher of a glorious message. Let's read it. Verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right. Let's start with that first phrase. First phrase said what? Now, after John was put in prison, two questions I want to ask, answer. Why was John put in prison? What's he talking about? And then second question is, why does Mark give us this detail? Why does Mark give us this detail right here? After John was put in prison. Okay, we get more details about John the Baptist imprisonment in Mark chapter 6. There's more details about that. You can dig in that on your own. Let me give you a quick summary. King Herod was walking in some gross sin, very open, gross sin. Here's King Herod walking in sin, and nobody rebukes the king, right? Nobody rebukes King Herod, right? Well, John the Baptist does, okay? John the Baptist was a man full of zeal. He was a man full of boldness. He hated sin, and he loved righteousness. I pray all the time that God would raise up that caliber of men among us. And here's John the Baptist, and he, and he boldly rebukes King Herod. And he says this to him. He says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And then he gets thrown into jail. Now, eventually, John the Baptist is beheaded. Okay, but what we have right here in our verse is after John was thrown in prison, or after John was put in prison. Now, why does Mark give us this detail? Why does Mark give us this detail about John being put into prison? And I'm sure there's multitudes of reasons that I don't understand because God's wisdom is way beyond mine. But let me give you three. Okay. Why do we get this detail? Number one, to further the, to further emphasize the fact, the truth that John is not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Okay. Oh, if you, if you read through the gospels, you see that there's a lot of confusion about this. John chapter one, you got people coming up to John the Baptist saying, are you the Christ? Are you the, are you the, who are you? Are you the Christ? And John's telling him, I'm not the Christ. Even in John chapter three, you see John's own disciples. They actually come to John and they're a little bit jealous because people, more people are going to Jesus now. And guess what John says? I must decrease and he must increase. This is a reminder that, that he must decrease. He was just the herald. John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the, the announcement that the king had come, but Jesus is the king. 
And this verse, this little passage is a reminder of that. Number two, why, why does Mark give us this little snippet? Simply to exalt Jesus. Just simply to exalt Jesus to us. This, this phrase exalts. Now, okay, how does this phrase exalt Jesus? How does this phrase exalt Jesus? It, remind, it reminds us that Jesus had a herald to say that he was coming. It reminds us that Jesus had a forerunner. Here's how I teach this to my kids. Okay, we ran across this passage recently in our Bible reading with my kids. And here's how I explain it to them. I said, Samuel, Keely, have you guys ever had a God-ordained herald go out in front of you and say, Samuel's coming? And he said, no, daddy. <laughs> and I said, you know why? And he said, and he just kind of looked at me crazy. And I said, because you're not the king. But Jesus is the king. So let me turn the question to you guys. This reminds us of this. Have you guys ever had that? You ever had a God-ordained herald saying, Hear ye, hear ye. Jake Crouch has arrived at church. <laughs> you ever had that? And he knows no, and you guys know no. Why? Because you're not the king. You're nothing special. Christ Jesus is king. And he has his own personal God-ordained herald. And this snippet of scripture reminds us of that third reason and this is hard to say quickly but i'm gonna say it quickly it after john was put in prison gives us a time frame it gives us the timing of these events okay now i'm gonna say something quickly and you, you know feel free to come to me after and say prove that more clearly because I'm, I'm gonna say this quick i don't have much time here okay but the timing of these events when did these things happen after John was put in prison. Now listen to me. In between verse 13 and 14, you see that little white space? About a year has gone by. Okay, you got Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation, and then in between verse 13 and 14, about a year has gone by. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because right here it says, after, Jesus, after John was put in prison, well, if you go read John chapter 3, verse 24, it says, John had not yet been put in prison. So if you use those two little timers and you're reading through John, and you see John chapter 1, you have the baptism. In John chapter 2, uh, he, he, you know, he kind of gets pushed along by his mama a little bit and, and he actually turns the water into wine. And then later in John chapter 2, he, he heads to Jerusalem. He was in Cana of Galilee there. Then he heads into Jerusalem and he just turns the temple upside down because of the wickedness going on in the temple zealous zeal for the house of God had eaten him up okay and then you see John chapter uh, 3 Nicodemus comes to him and talks to him so you got all this time that has gone by and then you get here in John 3 24 and it says John had yet, not yet been put in prison so these things had happened between the baptism of Jesus and and right here in Mark 1 14 these things in John the beginning of John had already gone down and then when you get to John chapter 4 you get the parallel passage where you actually see Jesus start to head toward Galilee he's in Judea He's about to head toward Galilee. And on the way to Galilee, he's got to go through Samaria, right? And he goes through Samaria and he stops and talks to the Samaritan woman. And that whole thing goes down in John 4. And then John chapter 4, I believe it's verse um, 43. It says, he departed from there and went to Galilee. And that's our parallel passage. And that was about a year of time. And you know that because as you read through John, you have one mention of the Passover in chapter 2. And another mention of the Passover in chapter 5, chapter 6. Now, why am I telling you all that? I'm just telling you that this is put in time. After John was put in prison. Now a question should come to your mind. Why does Mark skip that? Why does Mark skip that first year? Why does he do that? And here's something I want you to see. Mark, and this ought, this ought to again take the message of the gospel and lift it up even higher in your mind. Mark wanted to begin right here whenever Jesus started his public preaching of the gospel. Because if you read the accounts, before John was put in prison, before that happened, no, everything was kind of like single conversations. Even when he turned the water into wine, his mama was nudging him, right? But Jesus said, my time not, come, not yet come. Okay? Or in chapter 2, or chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, one-on-one. -on -one. you got the Samaritan woman. But once John is put in prison and he comes into Galilee, it's like he opens it up and he becomes the public preacher of the gospel. He's going into town after town, synagogue after synagogue, proclaiming and heralding the gospel. So this is the beginning of his public preaching. In fact, Matthew chapter 4 says it like this. It says, after John had been put in prison, it says this. Jesus, from that time, began to preach. 
Now this, like I said, this ought to exalt in your mind, this ministry of Jesus. Mark wanted to start where? Right here at his public preaching ministry. Christ was a preacher and he was a preacher of a glorious message. A glorious message, okay? Now let's go to that next phrase. Jesus came to Galilee. After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee. Now where is Galilee? Remember, Galilee is that region of the north, right? You got Galilee, Samaria, and then in the south you have Judea. Galilee with many cities, that region of the north. This is where Jesus, as I said, spent most of his time. He was raised here in, in Galilee. Most of his disciples, if not all of them, were, they were actually called men of Galilee. They're from Galilee. Uh, most of his ministry was done here. Remember how I just laid out to you all of Mark? Most of his ministry was done here in Galilee. And this is where Jesus met with his disciples after his resurrection and gave the Great Commission in Galilee. Okay, so Galilee's a big deal in Jesus's uh, life and ministry. Now, Galilee had a very diverse population, uh, more than mo or at least more than the other regions. In fact, Isaiah 9 calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. So it's more diverse than the other regions there in Israel. Um, I want to read this to you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Did you know this? Did you know that Jesus's focus and his ministry in Galilee was prophesied by Isaiah a hundred years before. Or hundreds, excuse me, hundreds of years before. Did you know that? Listen to Isaiah chapter 9. This is verse 1 and 2. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now that's the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. If you do some mapping, that's Galilee. He said God had brought them into contempt. But then listen to this. But in the latter time... In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee made glorious, prophesied beforehand. Now, how will Galilee be made glorious? Listen to this, Isaiah 9, verse 1 and 2 says, The people who walked in darkness, that's Galilee, the people who, it just said Galilee of the Gentiles. Now he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. That's Galilee. On them light has shined. And this verse is quoted in the New Testament, in the Gospels, as referring to Christ Jesus, the light in Galilee. Okay, so it was prophesied that he would come. We see this, the, the, the people in darkness show, saw a great light. What did they see? What did the people in Galilee see? And that brings us to our next phrase. They saw Christ Jesus coming into Galilee, preaching the gospel. That's what they saw. Now, I pray all the time that we would be like this. We would be a people aggressively invading the darkness with the light of the word of God. Like Christ, right here. Okay, let's go to that next phrase. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see where we're at? Jesus was a preacher. Jesus was the preacher. Jesus was the greatest preacher ever. Jesus was a better preacher than John Bunyan. He was a better preacher than Charles Spurgeon. If Charles Spurgeon was a prince of preachers, he's the king of preachers. Jesus was a better preacher than George Whitfield. He's a better preacher than Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he's a better preacher than John Piper. No one could compete with the wisdom of Jesus. You may have read systematic theology, but he knows the number of stars and he counts them all by name. No one can compete with the power and the authority of Jesus. When the people heard him, the scripture says they were astonished. When the Pharisees, sent, the, the Pharisees sent some soldiers or some officers to go take him to jail to go get him, and they came back empty-handed, and they say, no man ever spoke like this man. <laughs> he is the preacher. Matthew 22, I wish we had time to dig here. You don't have to flip there. But in Matthew chapter 22, you see Jesus obliterate all the wisdom, the, pit, the petty little wisdom of man, and Jesus just obliterates it all. Because in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, you've got the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're gathered together, and they're thinking, "How can we? How can we uh, catch Jesus in his words? How can how can we just kind of catch him in his words?" And they they give three attempts. And if you go read those attempts, they they try something, and then Jesus says something awesome, and then 
in my mind, it probably didn't happen. In my mind, everybody goes, ooh. It's awesome, okay? And you go read every attempt, and after every attempt where they try to, they try to mess him up in his words, every attempt, it says the people were astonished. The people marveled. The people were astonished. You see it every time. He just puts them in their place and obliterates all the petty wisdom of men. Listen to the very end of that section in Matthew 22. No one was able... Oh, I forgot to tell you this. Sorry. Let me tell you before we say this. So he obliterates their, all their questions, right? He just kills all their questions. And then as they're sitting there scheming, I forgot about this. They're scheming. They're just scheming. Like, thinking, how can we get him on the next question? Well, right in the middle of that, Jesus turns it on them and he comes to them with a question. And when he comes to them with a question, this is what I want to read to you. Matthew 22, 46. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Boom. <laughs> Jesus, he's the preacher, okay? He, he has all the wisdom, all the authority. He is the preacher. And he comes into Galilee preaching right here. He's the greatest preacher. You think about the Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets said, thus says the Lord. So they had a message from God through a man. Thus says the Lord. But who is Jesus. The word of God became flesh. He was, he was God incarnate with a message he was preaching. He's greater than all the prophets of old. Now, what was this greatest of all preachers? What was he preaching? What was Jesus preaching? And it says right there in our verse, verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Now, the fact that... Um, Gospel proclamation was at the very heart of Jesus's ministry. Again, it ought to take the gospel to lift it up in your mind and your heart. This is extremely important. Okay. Now, let me say a few things about the gospel that Jesus preached. Okay. The gospel message that Jesus preached has close ties with a coming kingdom. Okay. Or from his time, he says the, the kingdom of God will come. Okay. The kingdom of God is at hand. He says in verse 15. Okay. Or, or let me say it another way. The gospel he preached has close ties with a king who has come or a coming king. In this case, it's King Jesus. Now, why do I say it has close connection with kingdom or a king? Why do I say that? Well, some places literally just say the gospel of the kingdom, like Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all nations and then the end will come. Okay. Now, also, like I said, in verse 15, it says, Jesus preached the gospel, and then verse 15 says, saying, and one of the things he said was, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. So here's your, so, so the gospel connected to the kingdom. Let me give you one more little quick detail that I thought was awesome, okay? If you take Mark chapter 1, verse 1, remember what it says. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Think of that phrase, the beginning of the gospel. Now, there's been an inscription that was found. A Roman inscription from 9 B.C. And listen to what it said. This is about another king, King Augustus. Listen to what it says. This is that inscription. The providence which has ordered the whole of life has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus. Augustus. By sending him a savior for us. The birthday of the God Augustus is the beginning of the, for the world, the beginning for the world of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? That same Greek word used here. And here you got these Romans. So in this Roman uh, view, what was the gospel? King Augustus had come. King Augustus, God and Savior. Okay, this is their gospel. This is that Greek word. It's the way they think of it. And here you got Mark chapter 1, which by the way is written to a Roman audience and he starts off one chapter 1 verse 1 and says, the beginning of the gospel. And what flies into your mind? A savior, a king and he says, of Jesus Christ, the son of God. See, it's connected to a kingdom. Jesus' gospel a king has come. The kingdom is at hand. A king has come. This is the idea. Questions that should be getting to your mind. He's preaching a gospel and has something to do with a king that has arrived. Now, why would that be good news? Why would it be good news that a king had arrived? In fact, if you read the Old Testament, it's all about this king that's coming. This king that's coming. And some places make it sound like bad news. Like Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 2. 
You read Psalm 2, and it mentions the rebellious, which, by the way, you could put yourself in that category, the rebellious against God. And it says against the rebellious, it says in Psalm 2, God will speak to them in His wrath. And what will He say? I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So you read that and you think, the king's coming is not good news. The king's coming to pour out wrath. He's coming to judge. And all the rebellious, including me, will be, as it, you keep going in Psalm 2, it says they'll be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. So why would the gospel, the gospel means good news. That's what that word means. Good news. Why would it be good news that a king had come? And you know the reason because as you, it's very clear all through, the, all through the scriptures and it talks about this king coming that before this king comes and he comes as a judge to judge the earth, it says, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9, what we were reading just a minute ago, it says he's coming as a great light to, the, to, to uh, Galilee here. He's coming as a great light. And you keep reading Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says he is mighty God in the flesh, mighty God. It says he's, he's, the, he's the wonderful counselor in Isaiah 9, 6. It says he's, he, he comes with the throne. He's a king, the throne of David. He sits on the throne of David and to his kingdom there is no end. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. So he's starting to speak about it like it's a good thing. And you continue to go through Isaiah and you read the same king in Isaiah 53. It says he comes and he was despised. Before he sat as a judge... And the one that pours out wrath, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, it calls him. A man of sorrows. Why? Because he was wounded for our transgressions. The ones God spoke in his wrath saying, I'll set my king. But before he speaks in his wrath and sets a king, before that, he comes and he actually takes your transgression and your sin onto his own back. And he was wounded for your transgressions. Isaiah 53, 5. He was crushed for your iniquities. And he justifies many through his death. He died for our sins and he's risen from the grave. And he will come again as judge. And he will come again in wrath. But to this point, man, it's good news. Christ Jesus came and he died for us. So Jesus preaches the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. King Jesus has arrived. Now, a few more things. Let me say a few things about this gospel that Jesus preached from verse 15, okay? Um, this brings us into our next phrase here. <clears throat> Think about it. Verse 14 says Jesus preached the gospel, right? Verse 15 says saying, so we get a little snippet of what he said. We don't get everything, but we get a snippet of what he said. Now, what, what does God, what does God want us to see from this God-breathed snippet of Jesus' gospel? And let's read the first phrase. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does God want us to see? And here's what I think he wants to see. T two things I have there on the sheet. One is the massive importance of this message. And number two is the urgency of this message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, the massive importance of the gospel message. The Greek word that's translated time right here. Okay. Excuse me. The Greek word translated time is the word kairos. Kairos. Now, there are two Greek words that are normally translated or, or in our Bibles that are translated as time in the English language. Okay. There are word chronos and a word kairos. Now, chronos, which Jesus does not use here, it, it has this meaning. A moment by moment passing of time. It's where we get the word we think chronological. That's where we get that, a moment-by-moment moment passing of time. Jesus did not use this word as if to say, uh, this is just the right time for me to be here. Okay? That's not the point. He used the word kairos, which means, and I got this mainly from R.C. Sproul, it means a particular moment in time that is so significant, it defines everything that comes after it. So Jesus, in his gospel preaching, can you imagine it? He says, the time is fulfilled. He said, the time is fulfilled. This means, he's saying, this gospel, this is historical. This is a, this is a pivotal moment in history, is what he's telling them. The, the, point, the, the point of all history is going to be fulfilled in this gospel, and it's going to affect everything that comes after it. This is huge. The time is fulfilled. This gospel is massively important that he was proclaiming. Okay, let me go to the next point. 
I want you to see the urgency of this message, okay? The urgency. Can you imagine Jesus? Just imagine. Imagine preaching the gospel and in the midst of it, somewhere in the midst of his gospel proclamation, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Can you hear the urgency in that? Can you hear the urgency? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do you hear the urgency in his gospel proclamation? Jesus did not just dump good information on people. He didn't just give information and say, okay, now you can just kind of do whatever you think is best with it. Okay, he didn't do that. He didn't just dump information on, on people. He didn't have just a here, take it or leave it type attitude. There was an urgency in Jesus's message. He urgently says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he gives a command, repent and believe in the gospel. He gives a command. This is, this is very, very urgent. Some of you here, okay, I don't know everybody, I don't know all the faces, but some of you here, maybe you have not yet come to Christ and you need to hear this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You need to hear this. It is a dangerous thing to linger for a long time without Christ. It's dangerous. So I'm here to be the voice, the same voice. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You can't wait any longer. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now to brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus had an urgency on his gospel proclamation. Let us, may we have the same urgency on our gospel proclamation. Think about it like two different knocks at the door. One knock at the door. Somebody knocks at the door. How is it heard? It's heard as a request to come in. And the hearer, so it's just... Just a knock. And then hearer of that knock, casually, unconcerned, walks to the door to invite you in. But the other knock, another knock, don't you think urgency, an urgent knock at the door that doesn't say, take your time. It says, you need to get out of there. Something's not right. It sounds like this. It's an urgent knocking at the door. The gospel is an urgent message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Is what he says. People die and they go to hell every single day. And the world numbs them. The world will numb them to the urgency of the gospel message. Just drawing their attention to the things of the world. And Satan will numb them to the urgency of the gospel. Just, just draws their attention to the things of the world. So what he does. And let us be a voice like our Lord. This urgent plea. Repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like light penetrating darkness. Next phrase. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, let's talk about repentance and faith. <clears throat> Jesus proclaimed this gospel and then he called them into salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? He called them into salvation. He called them to repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are necessary for salvation. Luke 13, 3 speaks of repentance. It says, G Jesus said this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. Listen to John 3, 36. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You must repent and believe in the gospel. You must repent and believe on Christ to be saved. No one will ever be saved because they understand the gospel. They must repent and believe in the gospel. No one will ever be saved because they did the best they could to obey God. They must repent and believe on Christ. No one will ever be saved because they intellectually Put some things together about Jesus. They intellectually have an agreeance about Jesus. They must repent and believe in the gospel. And no one will ever be saved because they go to church, because they pray to prayer, or because they, they stop doing some sort of bad stuff. They must, you must repent and believe in the gospel to be saved, just as Jesus proclaims right here. Repentance and faith are inseparable. They're inseparable. What do I mean by that? I mean they go hand in hand. Repentance and faith are inseparable. In other words, you can't have real faith without repentance. And you can't have real repentance without faith. They go hand in hand. They're inseparable. You see this really clear in the gospel preaching in Acts. 
Acts chapter 2, lost people say, what must we do to be saved? Answer, repent. Acts chapter 16, lost people say, what must we do to be saved? Answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, which one is it? Well, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. They are inseparable. I've, uh, some, I've heard it described as repentance and faith, the double doors through which people enter into salvation. Or repentance and faith, uh, two sides of the same coin. Okay, Repentance and faith is what Jesus called them to. Now, repentance and faith can be simply described as turning to Jesus. Turning to Jesus. One simultaneous turn to Jesus. Repentance and faith. Repentance describes turning away from anything and everything that keeps you from Jesus. Now notice I did not say repentance is turning away from your bad stuff and being good. It's turning away from any sin that keeps you from Christ to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and put your hope in Him. Repentance. Faith. Faith can be described as reliance upon Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. Faith is not like a child believing that Santa Claus exists. It's not the same. Faith is a reliance on Jesus. It's a trust in him. So listen to how Paul describes the Thessalonians, their salvation. Okay, this is 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10. Listen to this. He's, he's describing their repentance and faith. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. To be saved, you must turn from your idols and put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus is preaching right here. So brothers and sisters, let us not water down the call to salvation. Don't water down the call to salvation. It happens all the time in the Bible Belt. Don't water down the call. The call is just like Jesus. Repent. And believe on Christ. And there's a, there's a lot of urgency in this message. <clears throat> okay, we're going to move on. You can flip to the back side of your sheet. And we'll, have, we'll spend a lot less time here. We're going to go to verses 16 through 20 here, okay? Now, let's read verses 16 through 20 again. Let me put a title over it. This is the disciple maker. Jesus, the disciple maker and his men. And what's going to happen is in verse 16 through 18, we have an account concerning Simon and Andrew, or Peter and Andrew. Excuse me. And in verses 19 and 20, we're going to see an account of James and John, and Jesus calling these two different groups, and they're going to be extremely similar, almost, almost constructed the same way. Okay, so we're going to read those. Verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Okay, that's Simon and Andrew. What about James and John? Verse 19 and 20. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, and James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Okay. Now, let me say a few things just kind of facetiously here, okay? So let me say a few things facetiously. You know what Jesus should have done? Any sentence that starts like that. You should know somebody's either kidding or get out of there. You know what Jesus should have done? He should have come to the earth during this modern era. That's what he should have done. Uh, then he could have, he, he could have really reached the multitudes through the internet. He could have done it through the internet, through air travel, through television, through video podcasts. I mean, he could have really done it. Now, obviously, I'm being sarcastic, right? But why am I saying this? Because I want you to think about this. Think about Jesus, okay? Jesus' herald has come forth and said, there's come one, one coming after me mightier than I. I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. Here he comes, the herald. Hear ye, hear ye. King Jesus has arrived. And then he, come, he steps forward and he's baptized and the sky splits open. Splits open and a voice comes out of heaven and says, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes into the, into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. He just destroys all the temptations of, of Satan. 
So think about what's happening here. And then Jesus comes and he's preaching the gospel. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what happens next? He calls four fishermen to follow him. See what's going on here? What, what's he doing? What's going on here? Jesus is different than us. He's not like us. Okay? He, is, he is different than us. Da- okay, think about this. Daniel prophesied that Jesus, or that one was coming, a king, and he was going to be king forever, and he'd be king over, over every nation, tribe, and tongue. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. And then here comes Jesus, and how's Jesus going to fulfill this? How's he going to spread this gospel and his kingdom out of the little region of Galilee into the uttermost parts of the earth? How will he do it? And he calls four fishermen to himself to follow me. Interesting. Now, Jesus did preach to the multitudes. We know that. He preached to the multitudes. But we know from reading the Gospels that the main output of his life was into these 12 men, this small group of men where he made disciples. Jesus was a disciple maker and he loved his men. Now, this should highly exalt to you the wisdom of Jesus. If you knew you had to spread the kingdom to the ends of the earth, you'd have all kind of ideas about how to do that. And here's Jesus and he takes these men, a small group of men to himself, and he, deci- and he makes disciples. This is what he does, the wisdom of Jesus. This highly exalts the kindness of Jesus and the love of Jesus. He's the king of the universe. And yet he looks on these individuals and he loves them and he trains them. Jesus is kind and he's full of love. Now here's how we're going we're gonna to go through this a lot quicker. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, um, let me explain quickly so that sheet makes sense to you real quick before we head, move forward, Okay. The calling of Simon and Andrew and the calling of James and John, I mean, they're so similar that that it's almost like Mark's trying to tell you something, okay? He's trying to emphasize something to you. And I put it there just to help you see it. I kind of put it in a, um, I don't know, a chart, diagram. I don't know what you call that thing. But see where it says one, two, three, four? And you have those phrases kind of put beside each other because I want you to see how similar. And that's that's in the order that that they're written, Okay? And, and it's every word that's in this passage. And you just got them sit beside each other. Number one, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, when he had gone a little farther from there. So he's just on the Sea of Galilee. Number two, he saw Simon and Andrew. Look at the other verse. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Okay, so he's going through a very similar structure here. So what we're going to do, for time's sake and for emphasis' sake, we're going to hit them, and we're going to hit these four points. Okay, so when you see on your sheet, it says, firstly, you need to think, number one, he's, he's going through that those two verses in number one, okay? That's how you need to think. So let's head through this. Number one, it says in verse 16, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and it says in verse 19, when he had gone a little farther from there. So here's Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, okay? Now, the Sea of Galilee, what was that? This is an inland lake. It's about 13 miles long, about seven miles wide. There was a thriving fishing industry at the Sea of Galilee, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said this, that there was 240 boats that frequented those waters every day. Makes sense why James and John, they're in this, they have a lucrative business to where they even have hired servants, it says. There's hired servants here. You see that in verse 20. R.C. Sproul said, this sea was one of the most productive bodies of water in the ancient world. So here's the Sea of Galilee. You don't get the picture these guys were impoverished. You get the picture they have lucrative businesses and taking care of their families. Okay, the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want you to notice this, and I love this. Notice that Jesus called these men when? As he walked by the sea. And then as he went a little farther. He called these men as he walked by the sea. I love this. Jesus did not limit his ministry to the confines of programs created by the religious institutions of his time. Let me say it again another way. Jesus did not limit his disciple-making to disciple-making programs created by religious institutions. He didn't limit himself that way. He, he called these men while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus didn't limit his ministry to the synagogues where it would have been easy. Now, yes, he preached in the synagogues, but he didn't limit it, limit it to that place where it would have been easy to talk about God and comfortable to read the scriptures. No, he took it into the world. He took the word of God into the Sea of Galilee where business is going down, and he took the word of God there. He's ministering there. 
This is one thing that stands out to me about the man who discipled me. Okay? When he discipled me, he came, he came to me with the word of God. He didn't wait on me to come to him. Okay? He, he, uh, he didn't wait on me to join his church, or he didn't wait on me to, to enter his disciple-making program. He came to my college, to my cafeteria, sat down at my table, shared the word of God with me. He came to me like light going in and penetrating darkness. Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee to do ministry. He took ministry into the regular business of life where people are sweating. And he took ministry there. I think we should learn from this. Because what was Jesus' command to us? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, be open to make disciples if the opportunity arises. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is a penetrating light in the darkness type mindset. And we have Jesus right here by the Sea of Galilee. All right. Secondly, number two, I'm going to read the verses. Verse 16 and verse 19 says, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. He saw, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. First question, who are these men? Who are these men? Let's start with Andrew and Simon, okay? Verse 16 through 18, Andrew and Simon. They were brothers. That's obvious from our verse. These, they were brothers. Simon is Peter because Jesus nicknamed him Peter. Okay, you can read about that in John 1. As you continue to read, because talk about Simon Peter, as you continue to read through the Gospels, Peter ends up having a, a, a massive in, impact on this world uh, for Jesus Christ. He ends up being a leader of leaders in the first church there in Jerusalem. Now, that's Peter. Now, less is known about Andrew, but we do have an, a, a sweet story about Andrew's uh, conversion in John chapter 1. You can go back and read about it. John chapter 1, Andrew's there. John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew pursues it. And later on, Andrew goes to Peter and says, We found the Messiah. Okay, so you have a sweet picture of that. You got a little introduction to Andrew there. So you've got Simon Peter, you've got Andrew. Now, who are James and John? James and John were brothers. They're sons of Zebedee, we see here. Out of the 12 apostles, James was the first martyred. You see that in Acts 12? John was the last to die. They were nicknamed by Jesus, and you gotta love this, sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. Okay, say that with some thump. Okay, sons of thunder. Now, why would he have nicknamed them sons of thunder? This would have spoken to their fiery zeal. Okay, it, it would maybe even sometimes their destructive zeal when their zeal was misdirected, their fiery zeal that sometimes became destructive zeal. You see the destructive zeal in Luke chapter nine when some men there were some men because of racism there's some men that would not accept Jesus. You know what James and John said? Let me read it to you. They said, uh, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Sons of thunder, like a thunderstorm. Jesus rebukes this. Now, they were misdirected. They were misdirected in their zeal. But their zeal was good. And, and their zeal brings honor to Jesus when it's directed in the right way. So let me ask you this. Where are the men and women of zeal? Where are the sons and daughters of thunder? Where are you at? I pray for you. I pray for you that God would direct your zeal by the word of God and it'd bring him great glory as he makes you a fisher of men. Now, so you got these four men, okay, these four men. Their call by Jesus was a call to training and service. Their call by Jesus was a call to training and service. Listen to what he says. Follow me and I will make you to become, I'll make you become fishers of men. He was calling them into training and service. Now, it seems like they were, if you take that timeline that I told you earlier, they've already known Jesus for a year or so, somewhere around that time. If you uh, do that time I was telling you earlier about when John was put in prison, they've already known him for about a year. And right here, we got Jesus calling them out to training and service to become fishers of men. These men were hard at work fishermen. They were hard at work fishermen. Jesus comes to Andrew and Peter. It says when? As they're casting their nets into the sea. 
He comes to James and John when? As they're mending their nest. These are hard at work fishermen. Does that not encourage you? That Jesus chose four simple fishermen from an insignificant town. Does that encourage you? Because it encourages me. Jesus is sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So why didn't he choose them to come from high education in Jerusalem, in the great city of Jerusalem somewhere? Why didn't he choose them to be one of those scribes in Jerusalem or one of those highly religious Pharisees in Jerusalem? But now he chose these simple men from an insignificant town. Do you think Jesus was proving a point by doing this? He picked men who smelled like fish. What kind of people does God call into service? Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians one twenty six says this. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. Now if you come from a place of high education or nobility, it doesn't mean that there's no hope for you. Think about Paul. Paul came from a place of High education, right? It doesn't mean that. It just means that it is rare for someone like you to humble yourself and serve Jesus. Listen, I am encouraged that God chooses ordinary people to become fishers of men, to, be, to come into his service. God chooses ordinary people. He, he, he chooses fishermen and tax collectors. He chooses construction workers and teachers. He chooses Pepsi company workers. He chooses med school students. That's right, I called you ordinary. <laughs> he chooses nurses and firemen and homemakers. He even chooses people from Pearl and Crystal Springs. <laughs> These are people, ordinary people, to know an extraordinary Christ, to do extraordinary things for His glory. This is what Jesus does. And you see it right here as He calls out these hardworking fishermen. Number three. Let me read the verse. Then Jesus said to them, what did he say? This is big. He said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Verse 20 says, and immediately he called them. And I assume that he said the same thing to James and John. Follow me and I'll make you fishers. I'll make you become fishers of men. Follow me. Okay, this is big now. Follow me is the most repeated phrase by Jesus in all the New Testament. Okay, 13 times, follow me, follow me. So it sounds like we need to feel the weight of this summons, follow me. We need to understand what it means, follow Jesus. The call here is to forsake all and follow Christ. It's the same call today towards Christ. To forsake all and to follow Christ is a radical call. It's a radical call. But here's the deal, Jesus is worthy of this radical response. He's faithful. You can trust him as you forsake all and follow him. And he's glorious beyond every other treasure you have, beyond every other pleasure you can have. He is glorious above it all. And there's nothing that could, should stop you. There's nothing on this earth, nothing in heaven precious enough to stop you from forsaking all and following him. Nothing. Now, the call to follow Jesus, okay? I want you to listen to how radical this was. Just let me read some verses to you. Luke 14, 26. Listen to this. Think, follow him. Follow Jesus. Listen. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross as suffering, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is not a call to make Jesus the top priority in your life. That's not the call. Listen to Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it it's a radical call responding to the call to follow jesus may lead you to some hard decisions you have an example we're not going to read it but luke 9 57 and on you have an example of these people somebody comes to jesus says i'll follow you jesus said i don't have anywhere to lay my head 
Sure you want to do that? Then Jesus tells another one, he says, follow me. And he says something like, well, let me first go and bury my father. He says, let the dead bear their own dead. You go and preach the gospel. It may bring you into some hard decisions. You think about following Christ. This is a radical call. Luke 5, 11 says that Peter and Andrew and James and John forsook all and followed Jesus. The same chapter says Matthew left all, rose up and followed him. This is all over the scriptures. Many people will hear this call to follow Jesus and they will reject it. They'll reject the call to follow Jesus. Listen to Matthew 19, 21. Jesus told a rich man, this is what he said to the rich man. He said, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard, when he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He rejected the call to follow Jesus. What about you? What about you? Will you say with C.T. Studd, who said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Will you say that? We say, I want to follow Christ. Now, let me give you a wonderful encouragement for, for you to do follow Christ. Back to our book, Mark. Okay, we're back in Mark. Mark chapter 10. Just listen to this. Mark 10, 28. This is awesome. Wonderful encouragement for you to follow Christ. Peter says to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. you. Hear that? We've left all and followed you, he says to Jesus. Jesus says this. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He said there's no one that's ever done that. If you leave all and follow Christ and this doesn't go down, you'll be the first. It's never happened. Now he says this, follow me and I what? I will make you fishers of men. There was a purpose to this call. There was a purpose. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So imagine it. They're throwing their nets over the side, catching fish. Okay. Professional fishermen. Throw their nets over the side. Professional fishermen. Right. Now, Jesus calls them. He calls them. He says, follow me. And then he promises them that he's going to teach them how to fish for the souls of men. He promises them that. Now, I want you to see something comforting and something challenging in that thought. Something comforting and challenging. And here's, here's the comforting thing. Jesus, the greatest fisher of man ever, has just promised to make you a fisher of men if you follow him. That's comforting. He's promised to do that. So don't worry saying, well, I'm not smart enough. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, he says. Or you say, I'm not bold enough. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He says, I just don't, I'm not good with words. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the comforting thing. Now let me give you the, the challenging side. Remember, the comforting thing is that Jesus promises that he'll make you fishers of men if you follow him. Here's, here's the challenging. Jesus, the greatest fisher of men ever, has promised to make you a fisher of men if you follow him. You say, you just said the same thing. That's right. It's a challenge. That, that is a challenge. Okay, here's what this means. He's going to make you a fisher of men. No excuses about it. He'll do it. Here's the challenge. Here, let me give you a quote from Steve Lawson. He said this. If you're not fishing, you're not following. If you're not fishing, you're not following. Jesus said that if you're busy following him, he will be busy making you into a fisher of men. Let this be a challenge to us all not to buy into our culture with the deception of if I just know a few things and stay out of trouble, then I'm following Jesus. Let's stay out of that. OK, let's really follow Jesus and be fishers of men. Last phrase. Number four. Fourthly, number four. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And, this is verse 20, 
And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. You just have it here. They left all and they followed Christ. Now, why were they able to do that? Why would they be able to leave all and follow Christ, leave everything and follow Christ? Why would they be able to do that? Because Christ Jesus is infinitely more valuable than home, family, or lucrative business. Jesus is infinitely more valuable than money or success. He is infinitely more valuable than all the passing pleasures of sin. He is more valuable than coming home to a wife who loves you and the children who adore you. Jesus is more valuable than comfort and ease and relaxation. He's more valuable than education or your social, social status. And he is more valuable than anything you could ever dream up. All your dreams of happiness, Christ Jesus is infinitely more valuable. You can't dream as grand as Christ is. You can't do it. And so they left all and they followed him. Let me end with a very simple call. Anybody here who is a lost soul, you don't know Christ, listen. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I'll be that pleading voice. And to all my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here, follow Jesus and become fishers of men. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for exalting yourself and exalting your glorious message and exalting who you are. You are so good, Lord. And God, I just pray that you would take your word in our lives and that every person here, Lord, you would open our eyes to how glorious that you are. Help us to know you, Lord. And thank you for your words that help us with that. God, I do pray for this church that you would make us a people full of fishers and men, soul winners. God, give us, give us a burden, a heavy, sincere burden for a lost and dying world that doesn't know you. And God, help us to imitate you as you come forward proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.